and welcome to another Godpod. Um, as you will have noticed, uh, this is still uh, Graham being absent, I'm afraid. Um, so you get the B team. Uh, and um, that I'd is. rather offence at that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, and talking of B team, <laughs> John, welcome to the Godpod. Thank you very much. It's very good to have you. It's great to be here. Uh, and of course, um, I was going to say an old stager, but I, what I mean is one of the regular team, Jane. So you're offending everybody this Yes, morning, soon enough, Mike will be by himself <laughs> answering, asking and answering the same questions. Well, there we are. It's, it's a bid to get my voice heard. <laughs> control. the only voice heard. <laughs> silence. <from> start to <laughs> finish. Um, but uh, John, tell us uh, about you. you. You work for. Yeah, yes, well, this is true. Um, mm. Yes, I'm on staff here at um, HDB. Um, I've been a curate. Um, here for the last year mm-hmm. uh, and in Church of England speak that's kind of like a, an apprentice um, pra- you have your academic training to begin with and then you have your practical training to finish off with and so I'm in the practical half of my training and I'm here for three years and I'm coming up to my first year anniversary of being here Congratulations Thank you very much. Get the cake out Thank you. <laughs> well, we could have another chocolate biscuit, couldn't we? Well, that's true. <laughs> to celebrate. <laughs> to toast, yeah. Um, Go for it, Mike. We're not going to hear munching. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, and and do you, you say that you know, they did the academic bit first, and now you've got the kind of practical bit. But you're doing a bit of academic work as well, aren't you? Yeah, I am. I'm certainly trying to at the moment. I'm mm. currently um, working on a, a Master's in Applied Theology, um, which I took with me um, from my first half of the studies, which I did at Wycliffe in Oxford. I used to, I used to examine that paper. Ah, well, yes. you're the, you'll be the man to ask. <laughs> um, so what's your, do you have a topic? Um, well, I'm looking at um, kind of evangelical forms of leadership since the 1950s. And can, can we, uh, there, will be, there will maybe people listening who don't actually know what we mean by evangelical. Okay. Can you kind of give us an idea of what, what we mean by that? Um, I guess evangelical in, in, in its kind of in the term that I would mean it has come about really only, only over the last hundred or so years I think if I may be right in saying I might need some correcting from a supervisor of the MTH yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and it really came about as a, as a desire to respond to a lot of the kind of post-enlightenment um, which might need explaining in and of itself the enlightenment being kind of a, a, a quest for reason and, and, and scientific kind of reason over and above kind of religious myth I guess can, can I yeah, interject you can because I just uh, on the radio this morning Andrew Marr was talking about a new series of television programs about the Scottish philosophers who kind of kick started the enlightenment and saying that this is you know the whole modern life and uh, all that's good about it comes from them rejecting all the medieval and wicked medieval view that was restrictive and constrictive and superstitious yeah. and now we've been re- liberated into so I mean he was kind of very enlightenment in, uh, yeah. in, in that kind of thing that's precisely what he's referring to exactly and so he's you know and so evangelicalism in a way rose out of um, the Christian response to um, I mean there's lots that, of things that, that feed into but that, yes exactly and so in, in a sense Christian, the Christian religion as it were um, was, was under attack if you like from scientific theories that wanted to disprove or discredit um, the dependence on the Bible as authority or, or, or as, um, on God as, as having any interaction with the world and so on and so, the, so what sprung out of that was Christians wanting to respond with their faith alongside um, uh, and so it's a, I guess it was 
a quest to put scientific reason behind a faith that up until then was deemed mythical, legendary, um, superstitious, if you like. Um, mm-hmm. And so, in a sense, for that kind of culture, it was giving a, a credence to what people believed. So, so, in a sense, the Christian faith was felt to be under attack by some of these scientific theories. I mean, yeah. we're talking about Darwinism and yes, that kind of thing. I mean, and lots of different kind of things feeding in. And kind of uh, literary and historical ways yeah. of looking at the Bible. It, well, exactly. I mean, people would, you know, say, well, you know, the Bible would be kind of torn apart almost verse by verse, word by word, um, and seen as contradictory or seen as um, implausible. And then people, you know... So having been seen as holy writ exactly. in the Middle Ages, suddenly people were looking at it and saying, oh, but it's a book like any other. Yeah. Uh, analyzing it, critiquing it, looking, looking at, at its contradictions, looking at authorship, seeing when it was written. Exactly. Those sorts of things. Yeah. And, and, and people got defensive, or what, what happened? Well, I guess... I guess people wanted to kind of embrace some of these, I think, valid claims that actually, you know, maybe there are parts of the Bible that don't have necessarily clear authorship. So, for example, there there was an understanding that the majority of what are deemed the Pauline letters in the New Testament were deemed to be written by Paul. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then in came a wave of people that, that kind of wanted to say well actually they're not written by Paul and, you know, because the language is different or they'd look at certain themes within it mm. uh, and so therefore what would happen would be is that people would say well it's not written by Paul so therefore how much of it can we believe anyway Right. Um, and so that in a sense the baby was indeed thrown out with the bathwater mm. because it was seen and so I think the response was not necessarily defensiveness because in, in my my interpretation of defensiveness is a kind of almost blindly saying no 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 it's not true kind of putting your fingers in your ears you know kind of la 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 not listening <laughs> and um, but actually it was yes, it, I enjoy that yeah, <laughs> exactly. uh, but it's more a sense of a, a genuine considered response taking into account actually what was probably quite fair analysis uh, of, bib- and, and, uh, of biblical interpretation and the rest of it and actually then moving on and saying well does this still mean that we have to throw the baby out too so it's interesting that, that what you're suggesting is that evangelicalism is, is a, um, a response that, um, saying that faith doesn't have to be wholly irrational. And I, I, is that right? Is that yes. what you're saying? Yes. That faith can be, have both the faith element but also a certain rational grounding. Well, yeah, exactly. Because um, I don't think that's how most people think evangelicalism. Well, no. I don't think that that's what people no, think it means nowadays. That's right, isn't it? Well, I mean, people see it as being a kind of emotional response. Or, yes. Well, it's actually, it can be over-rationalist can't it it can be very kind of mind orientated and, and can um, be quite suppressive of the emotions yes. but the, the impression people have of it is that it's an emotional response and or, or that yeah. it's synonymous with fundamentalism exactly. yes. and yeah. so you know you have evangelical used almost yeah synonymously in the media you know for radical fundamentalism okay, so you'll get so what is, the, what is the difference well I mean I would yeah, I don't know whether I would kind of see the... I mean, it's, very, it's much easier to talk about it in terms of um, contextual. So, I mean, if we take... When we think of Christian fundamentalism, we would often think of, say, 
you know, I might get myself into trouble here, but we might think of right-wing America, mm-hmm. um, where there's a, there's a strong allegiance between politics and religion, which we don't have so much here. Um, and so it's very much seen as, um, you know, it's very much used as a dirty word in, mm. in religious, mm-hmm. you know, it's okay to be, you know, to have your religion and keep it to yourself kind of mm. view. Um, but that's precisely what you must do. And what fundamentalism is seen as, is seen as, in, you know, is, is synonymous for being uh, intolerant, um, yes. you know, not accepting of, of certain beliefs. Um, and ways of living of other religions um, of all the kind of key questions that come up um, which provide difficulties I think for, for a lot of people in kind of 21st century So the kind of work that you're doing which might actually help us to sort of picture a bit um, what, what you're trying to say about evangelicalism, this work you're doing on leadership, are you looking at particular are you looking at great um, evangelical Christian leaders like John Stott for example yeah, and, I mean, and, I think and what he was trying to do um, in, in talking to, to his age, our age? Yeah, I think what I'm looking at is kind of the models that we have for the way, particularly in church circles, how church is led. Um, and, you know, a lot of, you know, even if we move away from the kind of um, stereotyped view of evangelicalism, there are some, you know, I would like to say there's, there's a lot of positives. And, uh, and one of those positives is that there is definite growth in, mm. in certain evangelical, uh, for want of a better term, kind of churches um, that would that would prioritise um, scripture as their final authority. That would um, uh, and that kind of they, they so want to take. So that's basically what you mean by evangelical. Then is yeah, well having scripture as your final. Yeah, well, authority. I think so. Mm. Um, uh, yes, but w- with the considered response that we, would, we talked about earlier about kind of take actually dealing with it rationally mm-hmm. dealing with the culture rationally yes. and so you know I think one of the strengths um, as we know here at HDB with the Alpha course it, is that it, it very rationally goes through some of the arguments why people might have issues with yeah. mm-hmm. scripture with Jesus with uh, prayer with all those kind of issues that come up in the whole kind of area of faith mm-hmm. it deals with them as rational concepts um, and doesn't ask people to leave their brains outside no well no. exactly yeah. um, and so so then going back to kind of the, the paper that I'm working on I guess what I'm trying to do is look at actually how that how those principles then impact how then they then lead in their churches um, and so you've got churches particularly in America that are, that are, are, are huge um, um, and I think many of those would call themselves uh, evangelical and it's looking at those and how they model leadership mm-hmm. um, m- maybe within their structures maybe as the individual senior pastors or, or vicars or whoever they are um, and how they then choose to lead mm-hmm. with some being uh, distant if you like because uh, they want to empower the congregation as it were to, to lead themselves and have various levels of almost like a CEO kind of of a, of a big business um, and then to those who who really want to kind of be on the ground level um, and then there are some obviously who want to do both who, who view that actually there's, there's a practical side to evangelical leadership I think um, in Robert, Robert Weber's book um, Younger Evangelicals he talks about how there's been a shift 
um, in, in, even within evangelicalism and it's really since the 1950s and he talks of how you've got traditional evangelicals um, who have very much kind of worked within the original systems that were there within the institutional churches in many cases um, who would you know preach the gospel as very kind of um, very kind of scripture driven very kind of preaching driven then you've uh, then you've got uh, the next one I think he calls terms pragmatic evangelicals um, which is a kind of a view that um, we need to do what works mm. so if it doesn't work let's not do it let's yeah. not waste time <coughs> and then the third one is what he terms as the younger evangelicals which is an embracing of both those two things the traditional evangelicalism and the pragmatic evangelicalism but also a return to what was before evangelical, uh, evangelicalism which is a kind of um, looking broader than scripture looking at, uh, at just purely preaching say and looking at things like the arts and, and mm. things like that uh, and that directly then impacts then how we lead and I think Brian McLaren talks um, gives this analogy of the shift in leadership being almost like um, the Wizard of Oz where um, just remind me uh, well, <laughs> the similarities here yeah. uh, <laughs> traditionally um, evangelical leadership has been seen as like the wizard behind the big screen with a big megaphone okay. saying follow me follow me mm -hmm. I'm over here um, and Brian McLaren um, who's a pastor out in the States in, in Michigan um, he compares it to uh, he compares the shift culturally in the need for leadership to be more like Dorothy but not like the straw man <laughs> or, or, or the, or the, or the tin, tin man, man tin man or whatever with yeah. no heart no <laughs> um, no and he said you know Dorothy was a leader but within the group mm -hmm. and she journeyed with them okay. um, and it's very it's arguably a more kind of incarnational approach yeah exactly it? I mean, Jane, you, you travel around quite a lot, don't you, and see quite a lot of churches. Mm -hmm. um, and you must come across a lot of different styles of leadership there. I mean, does that kind of ring any bells for you in terms of... I think it's a really interesting question, isn't it? And, I, and to have somebody of your kind of age at your stage of ministry actually thinking about these issues is, is really very encouraging, I think. Mm. I mean, I, I think there are so many possible pitfalls in Christian leadership. I, I think if you're... Um, a dynamic and attractive kind of person, the temptation to, to make it about yourself mm -hmm. um, is huge, especially if it, because it often does work. People get yes. very attached to a particular leader um, and, and the church grows and flourishes while that leader is there um, and then falls apart yes. when they go. So, so that's a kind of leadership that works for a, a while but actually isn't building um, a body that, will, that is sustainable. Um, but there's also the kind of converse of that, isn't there, that there's a style of leadership both in evangelicalism and in the Anglo-Catholic world which is uh, you know, the leader, ha minister, the person preaching or taking worship has to hide yes. so that you know, keep out of the way so that people can see God yes. mm. whereas again incarnationally they should meet with God yes. in and through you and one another the, the old um, advice that, uh, that we were always given is don't make friends in the parish because you know, you, 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 they'll know too much about you so that would in some sense be bad for your ministry if they, but, people saw you washing on the line to see yeah. you're washing on the line and, and to see you being vulnerable and weak and failing like the rest of them don't they, don't they think? 
I, I mean, I think they probably do, but I think it mm. is one of the questions, isn't it, about mm. leadership? Um, is is how much um, do people need to see you as as a human being, and how much are you a cipher for for um, other kinds of mm. um, emotions and aspirations? And, and um, uh, which is why I think it is really interesting question to look at. It. Uh, and the other thing, of course, about leaders is that um, people are very fickle. Uh, and, and what works at, at one moment and, and, and what you, and makes you feel good about your style of leadership, people will turn around the next year and say, you ruined our lives. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and, and, and you get that in the ministry of Jesus. Yeah, you know, the first absolutely. half of the ministry, people are saying, oh, isn't he wonderful? Yeah. And then they begin to think, oh, this, you know, he's crackpot. Where is he going? What's yeah. he doing? So um, how leadership relates to success, I think, is, is, must be one of the questions, presumably, yeah. that you're exploring. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I, th- I found, I think one of the things you said earlier, quite frightening that people, you know, if I think that people look to me as a leader, mm. however many, it only needs to be one. It's, it's probably not that fr- many, John. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly, you know, when I look in the mirror, there's at least one yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I find that, that concept quite frightening yeah. because I, I know me. And... Um, and I think a dependency upon me in that sense. And I, I, I realise too that leader, you can't separate leadership from who you are. No. You are the leader and therefore people will follow you. But the more that I can do that takes the dependency from me, the better I think it is for everyone. The better it is for my own ego and the better it is for my own walk with mm. God. And, and theirs. My, and theirs. Mm. Um, and I, th- I mean, one of the interesting things is having looked at you know what we would call since the enlightenment that we were talking about earlier is, is that we called that that period of of our world uh, certainly the western world we call that modernity um is the shift that many people kind of throw the term around as post modernity and think a lot of people hearing this will yeah, no, t- well tell us what what it is well <laughs> it does it just gets bounded around doesn't it, it? And, and, and nobody knows what it means and well it's um it's a term that i struggle with because it, it's defined by what it isn't Mm. Um, you know anything with the word post in in, in, in that sense not postman I think that would be <laughs> 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 any postman out there I don't want you to say that I you have, are I beyond have, men I have as nieces of a postie so <laughs> I won't hear about postman <laughs> oh, that's, oh is that the politically correct they are posties now posties now okay. yeah. well um, uh, yeah so anything with the word post in it kind of has a sense of that it's purely defined by what it isn't. So, postmodernity is exactly that, that it is defined by the fact that it isn't modernity and it's moved away from its after uh, modernity. And I think mm. the things that were structured, so, I mean, there's, there's lots of work you could do around it, but postmodernity is, is really that the phase that, I, I th- and I think we have, we're on a hinge at, actually at the moment, is that we have. Better than being unhinged. <laughs> it's very true. You definitely want to be hinged. <laughs> um, but we are on a hinge between cultures in that we have a modern culture which is defined by rationality, by, you know, can do, will do. Thinking there's an answer out there somewhere. Yes, and science particularly. I mean, a lot of these, there's a lot of marker posts. I mean, particularly, if we're allowed to recommend books, would recommend Brian McLaren's um, A New Kind of Christian because out in that he li- outlines, and you may not agree with a lot or or you might agree with a lot uh, of what he says Um, but in it in the first few chapters he outlines 
the, the changes that take place in, in a cultural shift and, and mirrors it with the cultural shift that happened between the medieval and uh, the medieval kind of belief systems and then the enlightenment belief systems and the move to modernity and mirrors those changes with many of the changes that's, um, that have happened he observes within modernity to post-modernity and so for example he would compare um, technological pro progress and so would say well one of the signposts of the move from the medieval period to um, to modernity was the invention of the printing press mm -hmm. and so he compares that now with the move towards internet communication as we are live now. That's interesting, so actual technological change produces or goes along with or is produced by cultural shift. Uh, a huge cultural shift. Yeah. Absolutely. The and there's lots of other things like science so you know 30 years ago people would say well science will give me the answers and I think if you now ask around there's less and less people who believe that but then there's less and less people who think that anybody's going to give you the answers or that there are answers which has enormous implications for, for how you lead doesn't it I mean if people yes. are actually going to pick and choose um, a lifestyle, a religion um, a set of responses to the world that suits them for the moment um, how you actually shape and, mm. and lead people consistently I think, I think the other thing about these cultural shifts is, I mean, one of the reasons the Enlightenment got going was because people were fed up with the religious wars of, of the 17th, yeah. 16th, 17th century. Uh, and, and so they wanted to marginalise religion, but make it just a matter of opinion rather than a matter of mm. public dispute. Uh, so you can have, it, as you were saying, you can have any view you like as long as you keep it to yourself and don't let it into your public realm and to your politics or anything mm. important like that, anything like the real world. Um, and now I think the fear is not so much the religious wars because that is not such a, a major thing, but real fear of um, oppressive leadership because the 20th century mm. was so full of totalitarian yeah. uh, dictators and therefore I remember somebody saying that postmodernism the slogan of postmodernism is um, that all ideology reeks of the death camps all ideology reeks mm. of the death camps in other words if you believe anything too strongly yeah. you'll end up imposing it on somebody else yeah. mm. um, now I actually think that the cross is what diffuses that mm. uh, that a, an ideology that's based on the cross is not going to impose itself on others because what does Jesus do he doesn't impose his, his agenda on others he allows them to impose their, their agenda onto mm -hmm. him and if you have that at the centre then it's not going to but it's a very real fear and a very understandable fear and one that we sometimes play into I think and, because and sorry because we, as Christians we do believe that, that, this, that God is the truth for the whole world and that, mm. and that Jesus Christ is the way <laughs> to God for, for the whole world so in that sense we are wanting to at least suggest this to everybody if not impose it well, but that's the, a key point isn't it it is about persuasion rather than because it's a respecting of the other person's freedom and to well, make I think, their own I think that's a very good word I think the word suggest is very good uh, because I think that is exactly what it is it's saying whether that's through your actions through your words just through your way of living you are suggesting there's another way there's mm -hmm. another way of, uh, of living it's, it's fa quite fascinating because with this distrust of even, I mean, I'd almost go further than, than you, Mike, in saying that there's a fear of oppressive leadership. There's a fear of any institutional yes. leadership, yes. Yeah. oppressive yeah. or otherwise. Yes. Um, and I was watching a couple of weeks ago um, one of the many shows on the Da Vinci Code that is coming out yeah. because of the movie that's, um, that came out last week, I believe. 
um, see the previous God Pod. Oh, really? Oh, yes, well, we did one with um, Mark Tibby mm. on uh, the Da Vinci Code. Very good. Well, it was too. Um, and there we say it ourselves. <laughs> and um, one of the shows that I was watching um, was, you know, I can't remember the exact title of it. It was Discover the Truth of the Da Vinci Code. You know, this. I think the Da Vinci Code is. Um, people look back and say that's a line in the sand I think that is as an indication of where our culture has got to um, in what in way? T- in terms of how we view truth and how we view institution and how yes. because what Dan Brown is seemingly doing is very or certainly how people have interpreted it is backed up all their fears about the institution mm-hmm. yes. Yes. and he's taken what is a very real fear whether that's about institutional religion um, whether that's institutional um, education and academia, the big cover-up, all the yes. rest of politics, yes. Yes. and taken it and, and played on it yes. and, and to a very strong degree. And I think when I, when I watched this show, it's absolutely fascinating. What you had was uh, a woman who um, was spiritual in some sense, had some kind of Catholic upbringing, um, who... Uh, who believed in kind of dream interpretation all the rest of it kind of was spiritual would have called herself a spiritual you had another guy who was um, uh, a guy who was a lapsed Catholic and wanted and, and saw the Da Vinci Code as a trigger for him to investigate um, his religious upbringing uh-huh. and, and the third guy uh, was actually someone that I, I knew from Wycliffe um, who was a professing Christian um, uh, who would probably have called himself an evangelical um, and was uh, and the three of them were on this quest for the truth okay. in the Da Vinci Code, and so they would go round various places. It was obviously filmed over several weeks, uh, so they went to Italy to have a look at the real painting of the Last Supper, and they okay. had the expert on the Last Supper, and then they mm-hmm. interviewed the guy who, le- I think, is very senior in Opus Dei, the movement that's uh-huh. referred to in Dan Brown's book. Um, they had. Um, who ought not to be? It ought not to be possible to interview him, according to Dan Brown's book. Wasn't it? <laughs> yes, <well> that's <laughs> so secret and undercover. Well, that's nobody true. knows who he is. He's probably a front yeah. person. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, uh, then they interviewed someone about pagan rituals and witnessed the pagan kind of rich, ritual. Uh, uh, and what then kind of sacrificing snails, that kind of thing. That kind of thing out yeah. in some forest and somewhere in England or wherever. And, okay. then, and then one of the final experts they interviewed was a guy who was the expert on Grails, Holy Grails. And he was the expert. He's, he, he spent his whole life researching it. Uh, and all the way through, it seemed these guys were incredibly cynical of all these people, mm. you know, these experts mm. um, who, who, you know, all had a... Ve- I mean, they were all pretty much saying that there's no real truth in it. Um, and uh, particularly the, the two people who, who wouldn't have said they were professing Christians were very cynical of these guys. Um, and then it got to the holy guy with the expert in the holy grails and he basically said you know this is all legend there's no truth in this whatsoever um you know this the and the kind of the word play that dan brown makes about sangriels and all the rest of it is actually uh, a medieval english miss miswriting and misunderstanding and all the rest of it and and the guy comes back the the uh, the guy who is the lapsed Catholic comes back and says, "Well, you seem to have made up your mind about this." Mm. And As if that's the worst thing you could yes. possibly do. Yeah. And, yes. he, and then yeah. he says, and then the response was, "Yes, of course I have. I've researched it, and it's not true." And the guy, and the guy just was not convinced. Right. And then, right at the end of the show, the three of them are sat in a field outside London, 
and none of them had any credit for these guys and women in their ivory towers who were saying none of this is true mm. and that right at the end all they could talk about was how their relationship with one another had grown and how actually that had answered that more of the important. questions okay. and it's incredibly as a, as a yeah. one hour show of actually mm. where we've shifted as a culture was incredibly powerful mm. and actually where there is strength and actually the move towards relationship mm. um, rather than ivory tower kind of truth in inverted commas but that puts so much pressure on relationships which uh, and ours is not a culture that's brilliant at relationships anyway is it? <laughs> so it's interesting that we are putting so much dependence on something that we d actually don't know how to, to do very well anyway. Particularly since the Enlightenment. <laughs> I mean, what reminds me of the great G.K. Chesterton thing about uh, you know, people like, keeping an open mind. He said, well, I, keep, I open my mind like I open my mouth to close it again on something solid. <laughs> uh, that's kind of one of the purposes. Yeah. Yes, you should keep it open. That doesn't mean you don't have a view. It's provisional and you are prepared to change it if you come across better evidence, but but what's wrong with having a view? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Um, but, well, that's fascinating, John. So, I mean, you, when you've got to get this written, when am I going to be marking it? Uh, um, well, you'll be marking it um, maybe in September 2007, so it's a while to go yet. But, um, and, and, and why is somebody of your age and from this, this kind of background committed to an institution like the church then? Just in, in for, for those of you who can't see John, he's actually 75, <laughs> <laughs> long white beard. Um. <laughs> um, uh, yes, well, um, for those of you who don't know, I'm 26 years old. Oh, yes. um, and so uh, you, you I look kind older. Of yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how being in the job a year ages you. Me, <laughs> isn't it? Yes. Um, you're in fact 24, aren't you, Mike? Despite <laughs> 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 appearance. Um, what am I doing? Well. I, th I mean, firstly, I believe I'm called mm. to uh, the saints. I think is is the best way that to I can the, to the, to the saints. The saints. Uh, mm. Not talking about mm. Southampton that's Football that's why, Club. That's why you're here with Jane and me this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Quite. Um, but uh, the kind of I feel called to serve in in a leadership role, I guess, or whatever that means. Full time Christian ministry within the church broadly. Mm -hmm. um, and as it happens, um, I've, I grew up in, uh, my dad's a, a vicar uh, in Southampton. My brother's just about to start training right. in Nottingham. It's a family business. It's, it's You're just going into the family <laughs> business. Pretty much. Pretty much. Um, and I grew up in, uh, apart from um, some time in a Methodist church, um, I, I grew up in and have always really been in um, the Anglican church. Um, and for me, I don't, necessarily I, I do feel God has led me into the Anglican Church uh, but initially I never felt called specifically to the Anglican Church mm. I felt called to the church um, uh, and that for me was very clear um, and when I was considering you know having you know grown up in a family where my dad was a, a, a vicar and so on whether it was something I wanted to do it was something that I was I just came at it with the attitude that every church has its problems mm. and you wanted to be that problem yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be a, a huge problem yeah. in a church somewhere yeah. um, <laughs> and I just I just thought that actually with the Anglican church I know what, I know a lot of what those problems are mm. because I've lived with someone who's been in the church a while and uh, and I've witnessed it and so from even though I felt broadly called to 
um, the church as a whole it was it was more a sense of actually I don't want to go into this blindly I want to know what I'm walking into mm. um, I know it's not going to be fun the whole time I know that there's going to be a lot of hardships I know there's a lot of pressure I know all those things but at least I know what to an extent what they mm. are uh, with the Anglican Church and so here I am in this institution of you know some 400 odd years um, and uh, and and actually yet for me when I got ordained a year ago um, and I was stood underneath the dome of St Paul's Cathedral and was ordained by the Bishop of London there I felt incredibly honoured that I was one of many mm. that I wasn't the first and I'm not going to be the last mm. and that there, is, there are, have been many people and there are many people and there will be many people who will serve faithfully in this church um, for all its pitfalls for all its Hardships and also for all its joys, mm. I was stood there as one of many, and I felt very privileged to be part of this group mm. that had laid down this this wonderful kind of uh, inheritance for me as I took I was, as I was one of the next group. I was one of the thirty five that got ordained that that year, and so and, and also for me it was very. I think the Church of England is is very very powerful because it has an incredible impact uh, on uh, on the on the world and particularly in England can I, can I pick you up yeah. on that because I think we need to be finishing off but I want both of you to give a kind of one sentence how do we respond to this situation where people are mistrustful of experts, mistrustful of institutions and mistrustful of truth how do we, as Jane was saying, we, we nevertheless believe that Jesus you know, is the way for the whole world how do we therefore operate in that climate of mistrust in a way that has authenticity and integrity Jane <laughs> I think you have to do what John is talking about you have to do, you have to carry on hmm. um, you have to proclaim what has been given to you um, in any way possible I think it helps enormously if, if one of those ways is, is the way in which we live hmm. And that is one of the things I would actually like to defend about the Church of England is that we live very openly with our, um, our, our problems and our commitment to each other um, and don't try to hide or pretend we're a perfect institution but actually um, live as people trying to be disciples of, of Jesus Christ under these mm. present circumstances. Um, and and I, I don't think you can always get it right. You mm. just have to go on being the person you are called by Christ and and hope that the Holy Spirit can do something with that yes John one sentence <laughs> I think for me um, I think for me I have as to the organ plays. as the organ plays it's, it's, it's rather like the oh and, and, and choirs of angels choirs of angels as well um, should we wait no I think we should go on it should be rather like the it's kind of final appeal of a uh, Billy Graham rally exactly go for it John um, the exalted from Mozart. Well, I think, I think, I think for me, um, I think for me, I have to be who I am, mm. and that actually, what people, what people want, when I look at my friends, is they want who you are, warts and all, mm. and they want to see that. Mm. Um, 
of course there's another discussion along the way um, maybe for another god pod about how appropriate vulnerability is uh, as In a leader what, yeah. and at what level that that comes but actually what people it's exactly the words that you said that people are looking for authenticity that actually people don't in a sense want those who know all the answers mm. because they don't mm. yeah. and they want someone who can say and they're suspicious of those and they're not going to believe they, yeah. think exactly. they do yeah. Yeah. and actually what people are looking for is someone to say I don't know the answers but I'm I'm trying to work out this thing mm. uh, and this belief I have in Jesus and 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 that's who I am and that my inside has to match my outside yeah. mm. and um, we need the one sentence from you too Mike I think Oh, I agree with both my colleagues. Yeah. <laughs> That's the shortest sentence and the most agreeable. <laughs> so um, thank you both, John and Jane, um, you, for your contributions. And um, do send in questions uh, to godpod at hdb.org.uk and uh, then we'll discuss more of them next time. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.